Welcome to Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal health industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician as they share their own directions, their interesting career decisions, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they made it all fit. Thank you for joining me today as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the profession we love. Today's guest is Dr. April Horrible. She is a veterinarian and member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. She is president and equine medical director of University Veterinary Equine and has extensive training and experience in the field of equine dentistry, oral surgery, and upper airway disease. She is also president of VetNow, a telehealth company. Welcome to the show, April. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. Well, it's my pleasure. And of course, right off the bat, I think we'd all like to hear about your entrepreneurial spirit. What is VetNow? Absolutely. So VetNow is a telehealth company, as you said. We created VetNow kind of happened upon it um, from my practice, uh, previously university veterinary specialists just outside of Pittsburgh, PA. We opened in 2016 and found our biggest issue was recruiting specialists and veterinarians in general, emergency veterinarians, to join our staff. Uh, We quickly learned that that was not an issue unique to us, that people and vet practices across the country were having similar issues recruiting staff. Uh, And that is why we came together uh, with partners in human telemedicine to create VetNow. Uh, VetNow was initially, and our focus still is, on providing uh, specialty consults to general practitioners. However, we're built on a software platform that has the ability to communicate with owners, communicate with other professionals in the veterinary setting, uh, both by live video by text messaging within the platform or or similar to text messaging within the platform um, and all the way up to sharing medical records, sharing medical images. And then beyond that, we've developed the ability uh, to implement those workflows into practices. So people can do something as simple as having a criticalist consult on an emergency that rolls through their doors that they need some help with to scheduling a specialty cardiology exam in a general practice and doing echocardiograms and ECGs and having a full cardiology consult by video. So we're doing all of that across the spectrum and we're we're really intending to change the way that veterinarians practice in a positive way. We don't want people to ever feel that Dr. Google is a replacement for a veterinarian. We just want to make sure that everyone everywhere has access to the highest quality veterinary care possible. April, you are president of VetNow. Yes. You're not just, you know, someone who stumbled upon it. How how are you president of this amazing uh, endeavor? Well, I think that the entrepreneurial spirit has always been in my family. Um, I always knew 
even before I went to vet school, that I would end up owning my own business. I did think it was going to be more clinically practice focused. And granted, I still do spend a lot of my time in clinical practice. But through my veterinary education, especially, I became interested in topics that were not purely in clinical practice. I've always been interested in One Health. I've always been interested in veterinary care in developing countries. And so this was a uh, the perfect way to kind of expand my reach well beyond what I could do in a single veterinary practice in Pittsburgh. And so when I had the opportunity to take VetNow far beyond Pennsylvania, far beyond. We actually have a Canadian division and probably starting a division in the UK in the beginning of this year. So having the opportunity to do that was very important to me. And let's take a moment to clarify because there's telehealth, there's telemedicine, there's teleconsulting. And, you know, I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people may think that telemedicine is, you know, conducted within the veterinarian client patient relationship. Unless, of course, there's an emergency, you're allowed to give medical care. Mm-hmm. But tell us more about telehealth. Right. So so telemedicine is uh, kind of, I, I would say, almost the older term that people would use to describe it. Or it's kind of the, the scary term that people are worried in, about incorporating into veterinary medicine. Um, and telemedicine does infer that there is a new way to practice medicine, right? That by doing something virtually, we're practicing medicine differently. The term telehealth was created to encompass all of the tools and resources that we use to provide any sort of virtual care. And so when we're talking about telehealth, we're not talking about a new way to practice medicine. We're talking about taking certain components of current clinical practice and improving them by making them virtual. Uh, So literally for every service that we've provided through VetNow thus far and everything we've developed, we've taken our hospital workflow and written it step by step on a whiteboard and then decided which components of that that we could make virtual through our telehealth platform. So it's a lot different than a new way to practice medicine. It's actually just streamlining virtual processes to make sure they fit within current clinical workflows and improve them if at all possible. And can you give an example of, say, one of the things that you were doing in your practice that you're like, oh, I don't want to repeat that again? Or were there you know, good lessons that you learn being a practice owner that that you could take and go, we can make the we can improve this when we present this in vet now. Right. So I think the um, one of the best ways to to describe it is really in the specialties the the access the quick access to specialists. Um, when we were having to schedule physical appointments in our practice or refer people to another specialty hospital, as we didn't have the full complement of specialists at that point, um, it became very obvious that we would be able to get people involved more quickly when they were uh, provided teleservices. Uh, People were waiting a month and a half to two months for a cardiology or an oncology consult, and that just doesn't provide the best standard of care for the animal, period. So you received your Bachelor of Arts in Biological Basis of Behavior in 2007 from University of Pennsylvania. Yes. And then you attended vet school there, Mm -hmm. and then you went on to complete an internship in large animal medicine, surgery, and ambulatory practice at Texas A&M. 
And then you completed a residency in equine dentistry at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where you also received a Master's of Philosophy degree, and your research thesis was on infundibular defects of equine maxillary cheek teeth. Yes. <laughs> Whoa. It's like, all right, wow. So let's go with, like, how did you choose Scotland? Scotland is an amazing place. I would have happily moved there um, anytime. Uh but at the time, that was actually the only equine dentistry residency available anywhere. And also, I had the fantastic opportunity to work with one of the founders of the specialty there. So both of those things combined made the residency program, you know, absolutely perfect and very ideal for me. At this point, there's still very limited equine dental residency programs. The first boarded specialists only came through in 2013 or 2014. So it's a very new specialty. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a few ways you can go with this because it's like, uh, I'll do something safe, you know, equine internal medicine, you know, it's, it's cemented, it's, you know, we, we know what it is. And then, as you said, there, you're blazing a new trail with equine dentistry. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what give, gave you the incentive to be like, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. During my time at Texas A&M is when I particularly became interested in dentistry. And it's a field that has been ignored or, you know, at least put to the wayside previously in practice. Um, and it certainly is becoming much more prominent now. But even in, in my veterinary training, I received very, very limited initial training in dentistry and vet school. It has been left to lay practitioners and lay people for too long. And so it's once again, one of those things where I felt that it was important for veterinarians to step in and, and start to control their own destiny regardless equine dentistry. Secondly, just as far as the clinical work is concerned, I find it fascinating. Veterinary dentistry, particularly in horses, involves a bit of surgery as well in terms of soft tissue surgery and the oral cavity and sinus surgeries and, and a bit of upper airway uh, surgeries as well. Having that combination with the dentistry, the, the traditional tooth extractions, and now we're actually even starting to fill caries, fill the defects in the infundibuli, root canals, things of that nature. So that entire combination made it a, a fascinating specialty to me. Mm-hmm. You're very caring. <laughs> like you really care, not like from a very micro level of your individual patients, but like I'm such a broad, um, wonderful way, like, Mm -hmm. like of just improving the profession, improving the care. It's, it's improving everyone's health, actually talking about one health. It's, it's really lovely. And so after Scotland, you returned to the U S and opened a small animal and equine emergency and referral center in Pittsburgh. Yes, And that's very ambitious to come right off a residency to do that. What was happening? Um, I think that's, that's a bit of a, you know, a, a go big or go home type of philosophy. Um, Certainly fitting in, as I said, you know, with my my family's uh, entrepreneurial sort of background and spirit. So, um, as I said, I'd always intended to come back to Pittsburgh and open an equine specialty practice. The small animal practice came about through, you know, several of my family's dogs and cats over the years had problems and we had to drive 
a, a pretty far distance actually to receive care out of hours and overnight and things like that. Um, so did the market research and it made significant sense to open a small animal and equine practice as opposed to just doing an equine practice here. We're talking about obviously veterinary medicine and 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 definitely the threat of the entrepreneur just keeps coming up and up in many different ways. And you being both of those things, I really want to know what makes you you. Because I think on the surface, many people think those two identities of a veterinarian and an entrepreneur are like polar opposites. Right, right. No, I I definitely agree with that, and I uh, I feel that way when I do speak with even a lot of other veterinary professionals that they do feel they have to be one way or another. But I think that it's really important for us to take charge in business, especially you know there's a lot more women in the veterinary field now, and there are a lot more women that will become business owners um, in the coming years as practice ownership shifts. And I think that us becoming involved in business, becoming practice owners is not a bad thing by any means, because at the end of the day, we do, we have to make money to support ourselves, to support the profession as, you know, debt rates rise. We're not going to be able to convince people we're a good profession to join unless we start to become business owners and start to shift the way that we practice and shift the way that businesses are run in the veterinary industry. Um, and we don't need to look at making money as being a dirty thing because money allows us to help other people. I think that's really important. So we don't have to be greedy. We don't have to be, you know, billionaires, but we have to make money to make change. Absolutely. I, I, my head is going up and down and I can see from you that you feel very passionate about this. Yeah, so in that, absolutely. in that vein, I think we do have to talk about money. Um, do you have student debt? How was this all funded? So yeah, so I did not have student debt leaving school. I was very lucky in that regard. I did incur, you know, significant debts to open my practice and to start my business. And I will continue to do that in the coming years as I continue to grow my practice and business. That doesn't necessarily equal something bad to me. That means that, you know, that I'm taking risks and taking on challenges and taking opportunities to create more business, to create more opportunities. Well, you know, we're, we've been talking about business ownership and we talked about being a woman too. I chatted with a large animal veterinarian in this podcast series, and she said it was really tough being female in that part of the profession. Have you found it to be hard in equine medicine? And have you found it to be hard as a practice owner as a woman? It certainly is a little bit different. I think being a young woman makes a difference as well, um, because a lot of other practice owners are still older men. Um, I, like I said, I think that's shifting over the coming years. It's going to have to shift. Um, but right now, a significant portion of the leadership in veterinary medicine, including and especially equine veterinary medicine, is men. I don't find it challenging in terms, though, of I find my perspectives and opinions 
as a veterinarian are still widely accepted and encouraged by other leadership in the, in the equine veterinary field. I think it's more as a practice owner that I'm still seen as maybe being a bit young and, and wet behind the ears and inexperienced. So I don't know if that's an issue unique to being a woman or if it's because I'm, I'm younger in the field. I'm not entirely and, and can't pinpoint that specifically. Lots of early career veterinarians are probably listening to this episode. Based on your experience so far, would you say, yeah, I, I would still recommend doing this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are there is a trend of people leaving large animal and equine practice, particularly women, um, as they've if they've been in the practice for a few years. And I do I think that's a shame because I think that I do I love how I practice. I love what I do. I love working on horses. And you know, I, I have a cat and dog and I could not see myself doing practicing medicine on them every day and being fulfilled though. You know, my career fulfillment, my clinical fulfillment comes from working on horses. Um, so I would absolutely recommend the field still, but people have to be aware of what they're getting into. It's not easy. You know, it's zero degrees outside today and there are people out doing work on horses. I'm lucky enough to be sitting inside talking to you instead today. Um, so it's not easy. Uh, but I think that it's certainly it's a needed field. And I think that we can change practice. Um, you know, if we are assertive enough, if we as a profession and, you know, as a group of young female equine veterinarians work together to change the way we practice, I think that's the only way we're going to be successful in truly making it sustainable long term. Um because I know that although I wouldn't do it any other way, I'm probably in a, a small minority um, in regards to my clinical practice. Do you, when we're talking about, you know, it's not easy and we were talking about being out in the field, a lot mm -hmm. of your practice is still is in a rural area. Yes. Are you able to provide the quality of care that you want to in those rural areas? Yes and no. I have a kind of a split practice as I do exclusively, you know, dental and airway practice. I will go out in the field to do a lot of assessments, but I'm lucky enough. I have a small a, a clinic space in a surgical area um, on my farm as well where I can bring horses to do that work on. Um, and I actually have a horse van for my practice where I will bring horses to me if I need them to get here and they can't get here otherwise. So yes, it is hard to provide that specialty level of care out in the field, for sure. Um, and so I've kind of addressed that myself by saying, well, I will bring them to me if they can't get to me otherwise. Uh, so yes, it certainly is an issue providing that that specialty level of care in the field. We're in an area here where there is limited specialty care available to horses in particular. Um, the closest really full referral center that I have available to me is Ohio State, and that's about a three-hour drive. So it's not easy to get horses there in emergency situations. Um, so it's certainly a, a challenge. Yes, and you're talking about transporting, which I found very interesting because, again, doing my research on you, you have a vehicle that's modeled after transports you saw and used while in Scotland. Yes. What makes it unique? Well, it's certainly becoming more popular here in the U.S., actually. Um, it's, a, it's a van. It's a converted large passenger van, and anyone that's practiced in the U.K. and Europe will have certainly seen them, and, 
as I said, they're becoming more popular here too. And it it's certainly easier to drive that than to drive a truck and trailer. It, it's like driving a car with a horse in the back. <laughs> right. Have you seen horses being treated poorly or transported poorly? And that fueled you to be like, I, I want to get this? Or was it something else? So I actually use it pretty much as my daily practice vehicle. So it was having that as opposed to having a standard, you know, veterinary pickup truck um, or SUV with, you know, veterinary containers and boxes and everything like that. The horse van made more sense because say I go out to a case, a horse that has sinusitis is a a horse I frequently look at. And I go out and I take x-rays and they have a tooth infection. I need that horse to come back to my practice to be able to extract the tooth. So occasionally I will just put the horse on the van and bring them back to my practice to do that. So for me, it just made a lot more sense. I'm not saying, certainly I don't think it makes sense in, you know, general equine practice to have a horse van on a daily basis. But for the unique way that I'm working, it certainly made the most sense for me to have that flexibility to transport the horse even same day if I needed to. We've also used it several times when we've run into real emergency situations with the horse. Um, we've worked with our county's emergency response team, the animal emergency response team a little bit. Um, and we can go out, assess the situation and get the horse on the van and, and take it to a referral facility um, like Ohio State or Penn or those are those are my closest university hospitals. And we can get them there more quickly if the transport is there when we're doing the initial workup. Can you share some moments when you were like, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. And you learned some hard but really good important lessons that helped you in the helped you where you are now? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think we, we certainly all have those, right? And I mean, working working on teeth, especially, I think it's a, a regular occurrence. Any vet that's worked and, and extracted a horse's tooth knows that essentially until you get in there, what I always tell owners is that once I start working on this horse's tooth, I'll know pretty quickly. It may take me 15 minutes or it may take me three days to get this horse's tooth out. And you know those ones where you hit the three-day mark are the ones where you are, you know, halfway through your day every day going, oh, I should not have done that. Oh, no. that's it. So I've had quite a few, you know extracted teeth where a a bit of root has fractured off and then you have to go fishing for it and then you end up you know working on it the next day and still cursing but eventually getting the job done um so there are certainly a lot of situations like that there are some very specific situations i can think of as well like during my internship i um gave a horse an overdose a 10 times overdose um in an epidural giving it 10 mils instead of 10 milligrams um you know things like that that i i thankfully have never had a situation where it has you know been fatal in terms of mistakes but after i made that mistake you know i i count three times and, you know, give the drug once now. So that's really, really, I think for, for younger people coming into practice, I think it's important for them to know that we all make mistakes. We absolutely make mistakes in clinical practice, but you also can't beat yourself up over it because at the end of the day, we're all still trying to do what's best for the animal. I was curious if we gazed into a crystal ball into the future, What would that look like for you? What do you think your next steps are with your practice? You mentioned Europe with um, the telehealth business. Mm -hmm. 
What does it look like? First of all, I think that my crystal ball is not very clear in terms, not precisely clear in terms of what I'm going to be doing in five years or 10 years. Or, um, you know, I graduated vet school a little less than 10 years ago. And if you told me this is what I'd be doing, I would not be doing equine dentistry as a specialty. I would not have, you know, any interest in doing that. Um, I would not be doing telehealth. I had no clue that I'd be involved in that. So I think that, you know, Finding my niche in both my clinical and my, you know, business and and industry fields has been very important to me. And I think I'll continue to work in those fields long into the future. I don't think that's going to change. But I certainly can't predict what veterinary telehealth is going to look like in five or 10 years. I think that, you know, as a company and as I work through VetNow, we're going to continue to push the envelope forward and and change things um, and change the way vets practice and change the way that we integrate into veterinary practices virtually. Um, But I actually can't predict what that's going to look like. I think that because we're taking lessons learned from human telemedicine, I think we're going to progress more rapidly than they were able to. We're, you know, we're not going to make all the same mistakes that were made in human telehealth. Um, So I can predict some things that are going to happen based on what's happened in human medicine, but I don't, I don't dare uh, predict what's, you know, what things are going to actually look like in my life in 10 years. Um, but I do know that I'll be continuing to do my dental clinical practice and continuing to do virtual care as well. They both uh, very much suit what I, uh, what I really think my passion is. Yeah. And as we talk about passion, I mean, it's obvious that you love what you do and you love what you have done and where you're going. Has this desire to, to do all this prevented you from developing your personal life? I mean, I think that's I think that's possible to say that to an extent. You know, I've been very, very career focused for as long as I can remember. And so I think it's certainly one of my personal goals is to focus more on my personal life in the coming years. Finishing my residency and then coming back to the U.S. and diving into practice, I though knew that was going to be a bit of a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice and really focus on my business, you know, for my first coming out of residency, becoming more stable in my career. And so that was kind of an, an acknowledged sacrifice of personal life, let's say. And so certainly moving forward, I intend that to be more of a focus of mine is to find more of a balance. But I think we do that as vets in general. I think that we allow our, you know, our personal life to suffer sometimes because we become so focused on our professional life, whether it's our clinical practice or our business. And so I, I think it's something that, you know, we as an industry have to be aware of. I do not have the magic solution to that by any means. I think that's probably something I'm maybe worst at because I become so focused on my, you know, whether it is studying for a board exam or whether it is writing another article or whether it is developing a new piece of software or implementing the software in a new clinic. I become very focused on that. So I, I have to learn how to focus maybe uh, on my myself a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious. You brought up something very interesting because you said after your residency, you almost had an, you had an awareness and you use the word acknowledgement that this part of your life would be sacrificed. And I'm I'm wondering if if you're aware and you acknowledge like 
this is going to happen, that it's almost better than if you're not aware of it and it just happens. And you're, I, I feel like you can get into a really bad spot mm-hmm. if it just yeah, takes absolutely. over your life, you know? Well, yeah, I think it's kind of maybe the, the curse of what veterinarians do to themselves sometimes. And I was lucky having that internship and residency in that time not to go straight into my career and really start to plan and think about what I wanted to do. And so understanding that that's what I was getting into, maybe from the outset did maybe make me more aware of that and more accepting of that um, from the outset. I think it's very easy to, you know, get driven into that, uh, that point, clinically speaking, where all you're doing is working. And if you don't realize it, I think you may be right, Kim, that that can be a kind of depressing and kind of, you know, pulling people into that rut that they have trouble getting out of then. So I think uh, we'll wrap up now by asking you for some advice. I mean, for some early career veterinarians who are listening today and think, hey, I want a life just like hers. Can anyone do it? Can any vet do it? And then, you know, what advice would you give to someone who, who wants to follow in a path like yours? First of all, yes, anyone can do it. I think that we shouldn't pigeonhole ourselves as veterinarians and say, when you're leaving vet school, okay, I want to be a small animal emergency veterinarian. That's all I want to do. I think that um, we can't pigeonhole ourselves into one particular kind of clinical practice or clinical practice period. If people go out into the workforce and decide that they don't like the clinical practice that they've entered into, try something else. It doesn't mean that it's a failure. It doesn't mean that they should give up on being a veterinarian. It means that you should explore other options in veterinary medicine. There's so much more than just clinical practice that we can become involved in. So I think that's probably my first piece of advice. But I would also say at the same time, don't give up on what you've always thought your dream in veterinary practice is. It may mean that you need to just go to a different practice. It may mean that you need to start your own practice and work for yourself. You may be happier. Or if you're a practice owner and you're finding that unfulfilling, it may mean that you may need to become an associate and go to work for someone else. I don't think that people in veterinary medicine should consider themselves failures if plan A doesn't end up working for them. I think that's probably my biggest piece of advice. And then in terms of people doing what I'm doing, I think that it is kind of possible to have it all career speaking, at least. Um, I think that, you know, People pushing themselves to enter new and unique industries is very important. And I think that people pushing themselves to change the way we practice medicine is very important moving into the future. Um, And I think my biggest piece of advice for that is really that people should be thinking about um, thinking about this differently, thinking about if they have a problem, think about a solution. If they have a problem, start to look at this from a different perspective and start to figure out how they can change the way they practice, how they can change their interaction with clients, how they can utilize something that they learned you know, five years ago or utilize something from their undergraduate degree or collaborate with people in human medicine to really solve problems. 
problems that we're having um, in the veterinary field. So I, I think that, you know, the take home message from all of this is is really as, as we were talking, Kim, to really go big or go home and really take things on head on and take responsibility and, and take opportunities in your own career to affect change. Thank you so much, April. I feel like this was a phenomenal chat with you and we've all learned a ton. So thank you for your time. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to to talk with you about this. It's something I'm very excited about. This concludes another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetta's Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We would love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, this is Scrub Chat. <laughs>